Today on the Thoracic Oncology Assembly podcast, we have Dr. Oshin Abramian, who is an assistant professor of medicine at the Cooper University Hospital. He is also the assistant program director for IP, and he is a early career IP attending. We're going to get his input on IP fellowships, the job hunt of IP fellows, and his experience in his first year as an IP attending. Welcome, Oshin. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's good to talk to you. Great. Thank you. What advice would you have for pulmonary fellows considering a career in IP? The thing I always talk about with the, with the pulmonary fellows is everybody feels a lot of pressure to, to delve further into niche in, in pulmonary. So there's pressure to go into ILD or PH or transplant. There's pressure for some people to go into IP. Um, I think I think it's something that everybody should entertain if if uh, as a field if they're able to get exposure to it. But they really should understand that it's not just uh, it's not just really a job. It's more of a vocation. So I, I I tell them to exercise it and and come watch cases, see what what you and I actually do, not only during cases but in the office and what type of decision making we make. And see if it's if it's something that it, that exhilarates them and something that inspires them because it's it's a difficult field it's it's arduous and we take we take a lot of risks for our patients you know we're off diagnosing physicians and therapeutic physicians and ultimately the buck stops with us when it comes to kind of figuring out how to manage a patient so early on with with the Palm Fellows I try to get them excited about it let them get full exposure and let them fully see what we can do. I'm sure you've experienced there's a lot of things that we do, a lot of procedures that we offer that a lot of general pulmonologists, full attendings don't know that we can offer. So I, I try to get their get their feet wet for them to see what we can do, see if it's something interesting for them and see if it's a, a career that's, that's uh, compatible for them. So fleshing it out, you know, picking your brain, picking my brain, picking the advanced bronchoscopist brains if they don't have an interventionalist, seeing what everybody's different impression is because there is a lot of heterogeneity with our jobs. And then, and then finding somebody that can help them kind of foster whether or not it's a field for them. And if someone's at a program that doesn't really have IP, is there ways that they could go about getting further experience? There's a lot of online resources that people can do. It depends how spaced out you are, I'm guessing. So if you're in an area where we are, you know, Mark, Mark, you know, we're in the Philly area where we're super saturated. We're at the shoulders with, with IPs. If you're in a place where you don't have it, they can easily reach out to one of us if they want to do visiting rotations. The, the plague has made this a little bit harder to set up, but they really need to see it in person. They need to see us in the office too, and they need to see us at the multidisciplinary meetings, at the tumor boards and everything. So they really should try to set in a way. If, if it's not feasible for one reason or another, then it becomes a little bit harder. Now, if the resources online, which are plentiful, are really rich and full of information, but largely far and above, they don't really see much of the actual procedures that we do, and they don't necessarily feel the gravity of, of the cases when we're undergoing it. And at that point, I think most pulmonary trainees opt not to go under interventional, but if they choose to take a job where there is an interventionalist or there is an advanced bronchoscopist, they should ask if they can be fostered or if they can join in, in, their, in their colleagues' cases. And that'll kind of start laying down the breadcrumbs to see if it's something that they want to do. I think that's good advice. And like from my own knowledge, I know historically that Hopkins, Penn, BI all offered like rotations that people could visit. And I think probably other programs 
outside of the Northeast have probably followed that model. So I would advise people just to reach out to places they would be interested in going to and see if they can visit, especially once the pandemic begins to ease and that's easier for like away rotations. I wanted to get your input on how was your experience during your IP fellowship? Did it live up to your expectations? And was there anything you felt that you would have wanted more experience in or these kind of things? You, you would agree that it's, it's probably was our hardest year in training. There were many days where we didn't eat uh, or didn't have time to eat. It's almost a surgical year. Um, and depending on the fellowship that you take, the amount of responsibility has, has some variability. A, a lot of places are, are not self-funded fellowships, so you have to do extra moonlighting. I was at a program that had to do the most moonlighting of all, all fellowships. So it was quite arduous and quite demanding, especially during the pandemic. I was required to do ICU coverage. The fellowship itself, I think, was a, was a blast. It's really fun. You are constantly active. Every day is meaningful. And you really blossom to another level as a pulmonologist. A lot of my colleagues that did IP fellowship my year, you know, we all came out pretty good pulmonologists, feeling confident feeling comfortable. And then we got a big slide back down to our chair in the first few months once we started facing the steep learning curve of a lot of our procedures. So there, there is a mental adjustment that you're not going to have the same amount of momentum that you had progressing through your PGY four, five, six, or your first, second, and third year as your general fellowship. You're going to be humbled a little bit. And the demand, the physical demand is, is high. Uh, the, the amount of volume that you need to capture within one year is high. And the, the variability in procedures that you you as yourself, as a trainee want to see, also might not line up with what's available. So that comes with also a little bit of managing in your expectations. I was at, I trained at Cooper. I'm still, I'm obviously in attending here now. We are a very, very big tracheostomy center. Um, we did around 150, 200 a year. Uh, so it got really, really comfortable doing tracheostomies. Um, we were lucky to have percutaneous biopsies, so transthoracic biopsies, which was really, really fun, unexpected thing that I was going to train in. Um, but we don't do PEG and, you know, we don't do things like confocal and 3D printed stents. So every fellowship is different. Every fellowship is variable. You're not going to get the full gamut of everything that we can do under the breath of IP. But I think we are all, we all know that we're going to be more than enough competent uh, at the procedures that we can eventually offer at the end of our training. So overall, very, very, very difficult, very physically, physically demanding year. But as, as, as the ultimate year in training, it probably exponentially uh, grew my experience. Yeah, I would agree that uh, it was an arduous year. I would probably work more that year than I had for a long time. I really enjoyed it. I made some really meaningful relationships with both my mentors and even patients that really changed the way I kind of thought about uh, my career. I know you've taken a position at Cooper, um, but how, during your IP fellowship, did you, how did you go about your job hunt and how did you find the job market? I, I'm still not sure how I did it. <laughs> uh, it was, it was uh, probably that, that made the fellowship maybe 20, 30% more difficult doing, uh, undergoing the job hunt. If you, you know, I spent, I, I started looking in July because I was so anxious about finding, finding the right position. And I asked a lot of, a lot of my mentors, a lot of colleagues and, you know, AABIP had some resources and videos on how to, how to acquire a job. It's by and large, it's word of mouth. By the time IP job listings are listed online, they're typically 
in my experience, tend to be less favorable positions or tend to be in positions that are geographically in less favorable areas. And those ones that are more competitive are already distributed by word of mouth. So for for current IP fellows or people who are interested in IP, it's it's you can get a job. It's 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 not going to be a problem securing a job. It's going to be securing the job with the type of expectations and the type of distribution of intervention that you want. Everybody wants to, most people want to do straight interventional. If not that, they want to do just generally two-thirds, at least 70% interventional, and the remainder distributed amongst either transplant ICU or general pulmonary or whatever else their niche is. You can find that. Um, it was difficult for me because I was looking last year and it was in the middle of another surge with the pandemic and people wanted us to be intensivists largely. They didn't want us doing diagnostic bronx, therapeutic bronx. They wanted us more or less to function in the unit. Um, so uh, it, it was difficult to find something or find a position that would fit more under the realm of IP given the, the clinical climate. But in the years past, I think it's it's largely through word of mouth. Now, if you do pursue looking at listings online, then you're dealing with the mishmash of positions that are listed as pulmonologist without really delineating whether or not there's opportunity for advanced bronchoscopy or opportunity to develop an interventional program. You also have to put into consideration places you need a, you probably should have a center that has a lung cancer center, if not a transplant center, because that's going to be largely the basis of your volume. So you have to put that into consideration. But what luck I really had was just reaching out to everybody that I knew in my region and asking who, who's looking for what, who needs an IP, who needs a pulmonologist, who will let me at least do something to build uh, and give me the support to kind of build up. And that was, that was difficult. You got to ask around and you got to ask your mentors and you got to pull in your support. You have to ask, you can't be stubborn about it. And there is, a, there is the, the last resort for me were two things. One was cold emailing divisions. So I would just enumerate divisions that had pulmonology, places that offered bronchoscopy. And I just emailed the division head with a cover letter, my CV, letting them know briefly what I want to do, what I can offer and waiting for them to email back. You know, it's, it was pretty much an 80% no reply rate. A lot of places that also are looking for IPs don't want young people. They usually want mid-career people. So that was working against me. I had mixed results with that. The other, the other thing that I started doing, I'm not sure if other people really did this, was I started reaching out to thoracic surgery divisions. I started reaching out to thoracic surgeons with the guys that we know it's the pandemic. There's a potential that your volume is maybe lower and I can easily integrate into your practice. I can easily integrate into your division without consuming your volume. And that's the fear of a lot of thoracic surgeons that don't have experience working with interventional pulmonologists. But those nodules, those e-buses, all of those 1A, 1B, 2A, 2B lung cancers that need to go to a surgeon, you can you can kind of entice them to know that you will be their pipeline. And I had some results with that. But overall, you know, I, I think you would agree that it's 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 huge amount of word of mouth. Yeah, I would agree. Uh, only other area that I I got sort of word of mouth from sometimes the industry people have heard of um, mm, yeah. job opportunities. And so sometimes it's worthwhile chatting to those people. And how much you got, did you get a lot of support internally from the, your IP fellowship program in terms of the job search or how did that pan out for you? Yes. Uh, one thing, one thing I knew is that 
Cooper, Cooper is not as well known as, as other academic IP centers. So the outreach was a little bit harder to get. Not that, not that I didn't have the support from my, my, my attendings and from my program director. It's that, it's that they probably had a smaller network compared to, you know, uh, uh, more well-known IP centers. So they did what they could, but it was largely me pulling them in for helping me with local centers or getting contact info for people nearby. Now, this is really variable, especially if you're at a bigger university center, let's say if you're University of Chicago or MGH or NYU, those IPs at the time get emailed from other divisions saying, hey, we're, we know you have a fellowship. We're looking for a new IP. We want to start a program. Who do you got? Who can you get? So that should factor in to deciding where you do your fellowship. If you if you are focused predominantly on setting up a business and getting the pi- in the pipeline of finding jobs like that, that, that might be something you need to put into consideration. I kind of knew that coming in. And a, a big portion of it is, is that the two interventional pulmonologists here before I joined were so busy that they sometimes just don't have as much free time for networking and, and doing academic things and meeting everybody. They're busy doing their day-to-day interventional responsibilities. So it was a little bit different for me, but the support was there, but probably not, not in the way that other centers can offer. And now that you are an assistant program director and you have the responsibility towards your fellow, how do you assist them? Can you offer the experience of your current fellow? Basically, I, I, take, I took a lighter and I put it, put it to the ear of my fellow when she started in July. And I let her feel the heat. Uh, it was a, a very nurturing, uh, but also very encouraging uh, experience for my fellow where I basically told her, you got to start looking now uh, and you got to start making, making those calls, make those reach out to those people, bearing in mind that it's going to take a long time and you're going to have to be patient, especially when it comes to getting an academic job. A lot of these academic centers don't know what their budget is the year after for hiring new people. So they have to kind of sow the seeds and get people's interests and start dialogue because the adage, the squeaky, the squeaky wheel gets the oil really, really applies here. The more you reach out and the more you contact people, the more people will keep it, keep you in mind because nobody really owes you a favor, but it's those relationships that was important for me. And also that's kind of what I instilled with my current fellow. Now, my fellow trained in Tennessee, so she had a lot of contacts back then, and she is is trying to go back down to the South. I believe she's already signed. So uh, it was easier for her because she was dealing with probably a little bit less competitive climate, but also she had left the program with an amazing track record. So when she reached back to them, they were extremely happy to entertain her, which goes to show that every day at work is every day that can contribute to an easier future for you career-wise. And she really sewed herself uh, a really nice future based on how she had behaved as a trainee. It was a little bit easier for her than it was for me because I trained in Philly uh, and the place I did residency, the hospital closed down. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, I, I came over to Temple with you. So th- the situation for me was different. I was already in a, in a very, very tight space. But for her, it was me just kind of constantly in a, in a paternalistic way, checking in on her saying, hey, make sure you're, I know you're going through training. I know you're getting busy, but you got to make sure that you're still working on figuring out a job and keeping in mind whatever emails I got about jobs or whatever I heard. It was 
probably, I, I believe it was my responsibility to disclose it to her, to let her know, hey, this place is looking for them, this place. And so I was constantly sending her screenshots, contact info, emails, stuff like that, that I was getting. So she can make, make the best of whatever opportunity was out there. That's good. What I want to move on to was the transition between fellowship and an attending role. And how have you found the transition yourself? And what areas have been hard for you? And where have you reached out to for like advice, etc.? It's it's a tough transition. You know, you're you've you've already done your training. Most of us that done, have done IP are more trained than most most people. So you have to reassure yourself that it's not that you need more fellowship years to work. You just kind of have to trial by fire. I got, I, I really asked the advice of, uh, of IPs that were my mentors. I, I picked their brains, what their transition was like and really how I should be behaving my first year. I was worried about it being a traumatic experience and I was worried that it would affect my mainly aggressiveness and my decision-making for patients. Should I have had a couple of bad outcomes early on in the case? Thankfully, that wasn't the situation. And I got different advice. I got advice saying, choose your cases. Don't do something. Don't do things too crazy. Make sure to network correctly with people. You know, I'm in a center where IP is established and IP is a very, very, has a very big presence. So when I started doing tracheostomy, everybody recognized me. Everybody knew I had done them. So it was an easy transition. When I started doing thoracoscopy, they all knew me. The anesthetist knew me. They knew that we do MAC. So it wasn't much of a problem in that situation. What the bigger thing was, was the decision-making. When we interview IP fellows, uh, general fellows for IP fellowship, or when I, when I talk to my, my co-fellow, I tell them, you, you know, you're going to learn the procedure correctly, but you've got you've to apply the procedures to the right patient. So you have to think like a pulmonologist first. You have to think like a potential transplant doc first before you start instrumenting the patient. And that's really the hardest, the hardest thing. Because when you're an IP fellow, the fellows, the, the cases just fall in your lap, right? Your attendings book the cases, you see them in the office, they largely make that decision and you meet them in the OR. But when you come, come to the point of reviewing the scan and talking to the patient and assessing their, their functional status and deciding whether or not they're safe for anesthesia, so on and so forth, that becomes tough. That becomes tough thing. And I got advice all over the place. Like I said, I said, people were telling me to be very careful. I've had people telling me, you've got to do aggressive cases up front to kind of get it out of your system to get the anxiousness over with. And I kind of vacillating between both early on my first month or two, I was very, very, very careful. I, I just chose cases that I felt very confident in. If there was cases that were borderline, I, I resorted to my senior attendings. I would go run cases by them. Hey, let's look over the scan. I think I want to do this. What do you think about that? And their reassurance or picking their brain was hugely instrumental in me, me getting more and more confident. So early on, it was a lot of almost every other day, like, hey, can we go over the scan? Tell me what you think. I think this is this. I think that's that. You know, I think they need a pleuroscopy, so on and so forth. And they were kind of helping me take the training wheels off. You know, they were just kind of a conscience that let me felt reassured. And now I'm at the point where, you know, things are a little more comfortable. Things are a little bit easier, but the, but it's truly the decision-making. It's really who needs a bronch, who needs a trach, who needs this? What, what type of benefit am I going to be getting by putting a patient through this risk? And that's the tough thing. Doing the procedure, I think, after doing a year of it, you would agree is not not hard anymore. I would agree. I think that's sage advice. Uh, I think environment does make a big difference. You know what I mean? If you're going into a new hospital who doesn't have IP previously, you're probably going to have a harder time getting buy-in from anesthesia, thoracic surgery. So mm -hmm. 
at that stage, it's probably sensible to build confidence in your uh, allies before you start doing very difficult cases. But I think in institutions that have more experience with IP, difficult cases are probably going to come around more often. And you do need to kind of rely on your mentors to help you through those. Yeah, it's, I will add with when it's like a startup program, it's good to be on, obviously, it's good to be on the good side of your surgeon and your anesthetist. It's good to talk to them, like really, really seriously have conversations with them. Hey, I want to do a, a, a thoracoscopy and they think it's a VAT. But when you ask them to do it on your Mac, they look at you like, like, you know, you've got two heads. You need to, you need to reassure them. They need to build the confidence and trust in you in order for them to allow themselves to take the risk with you. So it's, it's a lot of nurturing. I agree. If you are starting a tracheostomy program, you have to have backup. I think you either need to talk to your trauma surgeon or your thoracic surgeons and say, listen, are you here Wednesday? I'm doing my first trach. Are you okay if you're just standby? Or, you know, next week I've got a pleuroscopy. Are you in-house by any chance? Would you be able to just be there as backup in case anything happens? And I would suggest you really do it for your first couple of cases, your first handful of cases. A, they'll get more confidence in you. They'll get more trust. But also, ultimately, if something happens, God forbid, you have somebody there to help you out to make sure nothing really happens uh, to the patient. So that's that's a huge thing. If it's a new center, it's a new center, I definitely would, would emphasize you know, having people as backup and really making sure that ego doesn't get in your way in those situations. Yeah, I agree. To go back to job issues and the job hunt, do you have any idea of the fellowship class that you were in? How many of them have ended up in jobs kind of similar to the ones that they trained in? I don't. It's, it's, um, we, we all, uh, we all have a, every year, you know, we have a, a, a group chat that we all, each class goes year by year and the participation is variable. So whoever discloses what they do is, is on their own, uh, on their own resilience. It seems like I, this is obviously anecdotal. It seems like most people ended up doing startup programs or joining private practices. The majority of those people did not take academic jobs, probably because they're already saturated, but uh, that's a, that's a probably a question that probably should be pulled or something like that. Yeah, it's a difficult one to get a good idea or a grasp on. Right. But thanks very much, Oshin. Um, I think that's all very good advice. Is there anything else you would like to add before we conclude? When you're interviewing for your interventional fellowship, I would just say uh, for, for applicants and everything, don't focus on volume. If you're in a center that's approved by the AIPPD, there the volume is there. If you're in a center that has an established interventional pulmonology division, don't perseverate on the volume. Instead, perseverate more on the characteristics of the procedures, the distribution of whether or not there's benign or malignant disease, and what, what that program is going to do to help you set up to get a job. I think that's far and above more thing. Uh, and I, think, I, I really think that's a good advice because volume is just really doesn't honestly mean that much. Um, as long as it's accredited by AIPPD, you're like me. We, we love this. We, we really, really, really enjoy this. So we like talking about it. So pick our brains get our opinion. Most of us don't have any biases. Most of us are open and really don't have anything to hide. So talk to us, get our input and, uh, you know, come watch a couple cases, but network with us. We're, we're available and we really like talking about it. We really like nurturing the field and don't hesitate. I think we're, we all, we all get excited when, when, when juniors want to talk to us about it. 
Thank you very much. I think that's very good advice. I would encourage any potential IP applicants to strongly consider Cooper as a fellowship program. You will get very good training and very good mentorship from Dr. Brahmian. So strongly consider it. Thank you very much, Oshin. Thanks, Mark. It was fun.